Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 153. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week out there in Drumland. As always, we're having a great week over here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. We have a great episode for you today. I am going to be joined by Jamie Wallum from Tears for Fears. In just a moment, we have a fantastic conversation about a lot of different topics, uh, some very near and dear to my heart, but uh, I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Uh, So we'll be back with Jamie right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great Jamie Wallum here in just a moment. Uh, Jamie has spent the last uh, several years playing with Tears for Fears, uh, arguably one of the uh, biggest uh, you know, pop groups of all time. Uh, just a fantastic drummer, fantastic human playing with a fantastic band. Um, Jamie and I uh, got to talk uh, last month, the middle part of October, uh, and we spent uh, a Sunday afternoon just chatting about all things, uh, his life, uh, his playing, um, and we covered a lot of, um, you you know, I'm going to say maybe some, some heavy territory, but Jamie's very open about uh, his sobriety and his wild times. And I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm coming up on my fifth consecutive year uh, of sobriety. So it's very near and dear to my heart. And I, I was thankful that he opened up and talked about that and some of the struggles of being a musician and, and how hard it really is. 
Uh, so I know you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Again, just a phenomenal drummer. Um, and it, when you hear the story of what he did over the pandemic, uh, you can't help but just have uh, mad respect for Jamie. So uh, please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle podcast, Jamie Wallum. Hey, good afternoon, Jamie. How's it going, man? Good, man. How are you? Man, I cannot complain at all. Uh, I, I understand you are uh, in the in the great white north today. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, it's not too white at the moment. I think uh, weather's temperate, but it is known for being, uh, I mean, in Canada, right? Which no matter what anyone thinks of Canada, you probably think close to Alaska. But yeah, it's, uh, it's actually quite beautiful here today. I'm on the west coast of Canada, so very similar to Los Angeles, where I'm from, born and raised. So very similar. Awesome, man. Well, that's cool. Well, it, you know, it's October, so the snow will start in Canada. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> we give it another two months and uh, and it'll be it'll be quite white outside. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know that you kind of just wrapped up uh, the uh, summer run with Tears for Fears. You guys did a lot of North American dates and I think you guys just finished up Europe. Is that right? Yeah, it's kind of went in two parts. There was a, a live a live you know live concert tour and there was some promotional stuff that we just finished in europe but the long and the short of it is we started back in may we opened up uh the first leg of what is known is known as a tipping point tour right because it's going to definitely be world touring uh work oddly enough when that last tour we did was booked it was booked and announced back in november of 2021 so you can imagine this was still in the heat and heart of uh, COVID and venues trying to decide what the protocol was and whatever. So booking was very limited. Plus a lot of bands were coming, coming out and going on the road at the same time. So it was a lot of air traffic control, I think around that time too, but we did mostly, we did North America. We unfortunately didn't make it to certain parts of North America, nor up into Canada, but I think we did 28 shows in the United States and then finished in New York. And then we flew over to the UK which we were to do 21 shows, I believe, over in the UK. And we got through eight or nine of them. And on, and tour was going absolutely smashingly. Shows in the States were killing. We were killing it in England. And uh, unfortunately, due to, it sounds like something from Spinal Tap, but due to a bizarre bus accident, Kurt Smith, one of the two principals in the band, fractured four ribs. And we had to cancel the last uh, about the last 12 dates of the UK portion, which was unfortunate. So, uh, but he's recovered from that, and we just finished uh, about a two-week run through Germany and France for some promotion uh, to continue to promote the record. Uh, it's a fantastic new record that the band hasn't had a studio release in 17 years now. So it's uh, it's really been amazing. And again, just gearing up for for some more. We just got back from that, and uh, we're heading out just after the first of the year, from what I understand. So a lot to come for sure. Yeah, man. Well, and you mentioned the the dreaded C word in there, the whole COVID shutdown now, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but you've been playing with tears for fears for quite a few years now. What was your downtime like in 2020 and, and 21? Were you doing kind of remote studio work during that time? How did you, how did you spend your pandemic? I guess is the question. Yeah, no. And that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I, I've, I've, thought about many different ways to approach how I talk about my, you know, career and my time. Here's the reality, man. I am as painfully so. I'm as bare bones, as honest as you will ever find in a person when it comes to stuff like this. And the bottom line is I, there was no work for me. I had 
just for about a year before that had relocated to Canada. I have dual citizenship, but I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. And due to a number of reasons, which again, happy to get into as we progress, but due to need for, for recovery, I'm, I'm sober and I'm just, just took three years sober. So, uh, this was a right around the time I moved up here to just get out of LA. I was really struggling, having a very hard time getting my health and my wellness together and, uh, gone through a really bad breakup and things were just really, really tough and I could not get myself square. So as sort of a last ditch effort, I had an opportunity to come spend some time with my mom and some family up here in Canada. And I put all my stuff in storage and literally came up with a suitcase and an acoustic guitar, not knowing how long I'd stay. And, and I've been here just about four years. Oh wow! So pandemic started and, uh, and then I definitely knew we were in for it, but I had, so I had gotten a job anyways during the time that, uh, just after I moved up here, uh, in a field that I had known and knew nothing about, which was construction. So I got a job at a lumber yard in Canada, which is every bit. Now, everyone who knows the movie, I go straight to Wolverine, right? Like that's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, I grew the beard and I've got the claws and uh, I've, I'm every bit as Canadian lumberjack, uh, if you could imagine. And yet at the same time, so I spent two years working at it. I got my crane license. I got my forklift license. I got, I basically, I, I, I manage and run a, a lumber yard here in British Columbia and it's an amazing job. I've learned uh, so much. It's what's allowing me to be out right now building a, <laughs> a shed for all my studio stuff. So yeah, I did not do anything musically during that time, literally nothing. And now it's all just beginning to open back up. And so I'm finishing building a studio and uh, I, my goal is to get into a lot more uh, a lot more social media and a lot more, yeah, uh, remote recording. That's ultimately my goal because I'm I love doing session work. Well, man, that's awesome. And you know, you, you touched on a lot of real stuff there. You know, for yeah. for musicians, and mm. you know, I guess I'll start with the you know, here you are. You've been playing with you know one of the you know arguably biggest groups ever out of Europe um, for several years and when the pandemic hit you went and started working at a lumberyard and you know I think a lot of people in our industry you know they're like oh well you know I gave lessons during that time nobody wants to say look I had to go get a day gig right yeah, nobody yeah. ever wants to say that but you did no, of course. and I commend you for that man that's awesome I thank you for honestly, man. I thank you for understanding that. And and again, not that it's it's so funny. I'm often drawn back to a stand-up routine. I think it was like Chris Rock or something from years ago that I saw when he was talking about how guys who you know in the thug life were like, yeah, well, you don't know. I'm really trying to straighten out. I didn't rob a bank today, or I didn't you know hold up that guy at the ATM or something. He's like, man, you didn't do something that you shouldn't be doing anyway, you know, or like or give you Adelaide because you read a book today, and it's like. Man, that's so. My point is, I appreciate you recognizing it, but it's like to me, the way that I've been born and raised and grown up, I really hit a point that was transitional for me and huge for me to actually go back to a place in my life where I was working a steady job, where I'm, I'm, uh, I'm needed, and I'm, I'm have, I'm held accountable, and I have to show up on time, and I have people that work under me that I have to help train and I have to learn a lot myself. And so all that stuff, like a lot of times when you do music for years and years and years, I think there's a part of, I'll be honest and say, it's a part of what I like to call normal life and real life that I think people 
uh, and a lot of people I know and are very close to that they they haven't had to partake of in a very long time. And you know, I'm not saying that makes them less rounded people or anything, but I can tell you it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Some of the people that I've met where I live who are amazing builders and carpenters and cement workers and whatever who can also pick up a guitar in their living room and just blow your mind and they only do it for fun you know what i mean so it's opened up my eyes to the reality like there it's an art to being a good builder it's an art to knowing how to uh how to cut wood and work with wood and build foundations and crane things off and like so it's been it's been actually amazingly beautiful and again like you said i think it's just you can't be afraid to work and again i'm not trying to knock anyone else but i think sometimes uh in this business people get a little comfy they get a little concerned that somehow that's going to not make their rep look good if they had to go out and get a normal job because they're not doing it music but man I know lots of people that either had to go get normal jobs or ended up having to move out of the cities they were living in trying to make a living because they couldn't do it and move back home. And so, yeah, I speak openly about it and I'm just super, super grateful that I had a very stable, very healthy and very uh, needed environment to be a part of. It really, really has helped me keep my head on straight. Yeah, man. Well, that's that's awesome. And, you know, I, you also mentioned your sobriety and, you know, I, I don't hide the fact that you know, I'm coming up on five years um, of sobriety and, you know, by, by the grace of God, I take it one day at a time. You, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, but you, you talked about being grounded and, you know, I, I think that there's just this, you know, oh, well, he's a rock star. You know, how could he waste it all on drugs and alcohol? You, you hear that from non-musicians, right? Like how could yeah. somebody, but when you're in the bubble, and, and a lot of people don't understand what that means, but when you're in that bubble, it's very hard to be grounded because, you know, y- your day is spoken for and you have your handlers and, you know, bus call is at eight and y- you know what I mean? Like your day is just planned out for you and it's real. It's like, no, literally it's like, it's like, and I, I make no qualms about this and I've experienced it myself. I have a really funny brief story I'll tell you, but my point is it, it borders on, <clears throat> it borders on hopefully responsible people taking care of very irresponsible childlike adults who live in a, a very small bubble. And yeah. again, you know, there's beauty that comes out of that bubble and there's great talent and there's great reasons why there's such, you know, attention and stuff paid to certain aspects of the touring life and taking care of the rich and famous and whatever. But point being, I don't know, I, I tend to stray away from anybody that I've ever run into in the business. It's going to be so over the top on stuff like that, that they, that they're not grounded. And cause that's a, I, I was going to share with you. I remember one time I was, uh, I was on tour with Tom Morello. I played with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and I was doing some live dates and we came down for lobby call from a hotel very early. I think it was about 6.30 or something was the lobby call in the morning to get to the airport to catch a flight because we had a show a show that night. And we had just played somewhere the night before. And, of course, this is when I was living a life of rock stardom. And, of course, I'm, I'm out at the bars and partying with friends and doing all that kind of stuff to the point where I probably, if I did go to sleep, I probably only grabbed a couple hours. And I remember coming downstairs at 6.30, and I've got my bag with me and my sunglasses on and I'm all burnt out and I'm probably still a bit drunk and starting to come down and be hung over. And, and my first thing was to see the tour manager. And of course, the first thing out of my mouth is, 
why the F are we, you know, meeting at 6.30? God, that's inhumane and blah, 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 blah. And he literally walked up and pulled my sunglasses off my face and said, you just played drums in front of 10,000 people last night who loved it and adored it. You're getting on a plane to fly, you know, to Amsterdam today to play it in front of another 10,000 people. And you're getting paid for it. Like, you better check yourself. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, and he was dead serious. And I kind of thought about it and I thought, whoa. And that has stuck with me, although it took many other years after that of my own personal sort of journey and struggle and demise to come to grips with what it's really like to what it's really like to have led a very self-centered, very kind of selfish uh, kind of life and way of living. And and uh, it can be very toxic. Yeah. So you, I just, I'm grateful, man. I've looked at what I look now. I sit down and I look back at the stuff that I've been allowed, places I've allowed to, been allowed to see and experiences I've had with music and because of music. And I'm so incredibly grateful. Like it's mind blowing. I, I, I will never take another minute of the opportunity to play music or play drums live in front of people i will never take that for granted as though it's a, a burden or a curse i just i will always be grateful i'm so incredibly thankful that i made it through that times and that i still have an opportunity to play music because with a fresh and healthy perspective it's been like nothing i've ever experienced yeah man you and me both you and me mm -hmm. both well um you know i'll change gears a little bit here and kind of back up a little you know, you're you're an LA guy, born and raised. Um, when did drumming first come into your life? Do you come from a musical family? Mm. That's a great question. I, I come from a family that definitely has some musical abilities, but I don't come from a family that's had a lot of professional status. Um, my first drum teacher, and the reason I even got turned on to drums was because my uncle, who is my dad's my dad's the oldest of four, my his youngest brother. Rob, my uncle Rob is a drummer and still is a drummer, um, has done it professionally in and out of his lifetime, but has ultimately not done it for, for too many years professionally, professionally, but he's an incredible musician. Even to this day, I just saw him and spent some time with him a couple weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, still recordings, got a studio set up and we geek out and talk drums. And so he was my first drum teacher, my first sort of inspiration and what turned me on to it. And, uh, and then my dad is a guitar player. He's always had guitars and fiddles and banjos and stuff lying around. And so I think just from a very early age, I think it was more given the fact that my parents loved music and uh, and that my uncle was a drummer. And I have an older sister who turned me on to some fantastic music, but who wasn't a musician. So no, I, I don't know what, I know that I was attracted to drums, period, because of my uncle and because of Peter Chris. And that was all know, I yeah. really remember yeah. And then I just remember, I saw Kiss Live. It was my first concert when I was 10 years old and, and it was over. I was hooked, like so hooked. I thought this is all I want to do. And so even from like the age of, so I got my first drum set when I turned 12, even from the age of 13 or 14, I was reading up on and learning about session drummers. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a recording session drummer more than anything, like more than even just being in a band. I remember being 13, 14 and thinking and, and studying and being, and idolizing guys like Jeff Picaro and Jim Keltner and Steve Gadd because of uh, Russ Kunkel and J.R. Robinson and all these heavy duty uh, session guys who were just playing on all the records that I loved. So that was that was my goal. And then uh, so I continued to study privately, but it's definitely my uncle that turned me on to it. And, and we still inspire and encourage one another to this day. 
Yeah, man, that's awesome. And, you know, I mean, we, we, we kind of joked before we got going here about, you know, just let me be Jim Keltner and I'll be fine kind of thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, you know, I, I realize sometimes too, that that's a really easy, I just have to say this on that thought, because again, I'll reference, I'll reference the fact that for people who didn't hear some of the uh, conversation we had first, yeah, that I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big heavy hitter in the world of technical, uh, what I call the, the geeking out or the nerding out of drums, because I, I think that I hit a point too, where technically, you know, like everyone, I just realized that, that I was never going to be as good as I think I thought I had to be to compete with some of the guys who were the best, if that makes sense. Like I, I remember going and seeing Dave Weckl play live in Los Angeles when I was about 19 and I was going to percussion, I was going to PIT at the time at a percussion institute, part of Musicians Institute in LA. And I remember going to see Dave Weckl at the Catalina Club. And it was the first time I can say that I experienced this incredible split of emotions that were so counter, like so 180 of one another. I was so inspired and so blown away, yet I yet I felt incredibly depressed too. Like I didn't even want to pick up sticks because I felt like I was so mesmerized and so in awe of the technical ability, I thought there is no way I will ever be able to be that good. So why am I even bothering doing anything? And then I kind of came full circle around it and went, I just want to do what I love. And what am I, what, where does my heart gravitate to when I start playing? And who are the drummers and what's the kind of music and what do I want to do? And I thought, man, I want to be a, a singer-songwriter's drummer. Like, I want to be the guy that can play for the song. Steve Jordan and Jim Keltner and, you know, I, I the technical stuff. And it's not because I, I don't want to learn that stuff, but I just have my limits. And as especially now at 52, like, I wanted to become a professional player. And the funny part is, and this might segue into the rest of this episode or another episode, is the funny part is on a professional level, the opportunities I've had to work and the people that I played with far prefer a drummer that approaches his drumming from where I'm at than the guys who are all about the technical aspect. Because even though that's very, does that make sense? So oh, even yeah. the young, energetic, uh, feverish, technical, like that's all fantastic, but you'd probably bring one one hundredth of that into a gig with a professional singer songwriter or a band or whatever. And you'll, you'll get your keys handed to you and your jacket handed to you and said, you know what I mean? And shown the door because it just doesn't, it just doesn't go, which doesn't mean, you know, so, but I, so I've really tended to gravitate toward what makes a drummer feel the time a certain way, what makes the song feel the certain way, what makes his backbeat and his drum sound sound that way. And so I've gotten more into those specifics than how fast I can play the molar technique with a single handed roll, because I'd never do that. I'd never do that anyway. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so. and we're close to, to the same age, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you, but um, you know, there's a little ribbon for you, but um you know, back when we started, there was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, there wasn't even an internet, right? So I, I just think exactly. that, I, I think today, like I can scroll through Instagram and be completely depressed because there's like, you know, a seven-year-old girl in Japan that can play circles around me, right? But, you know, yeah. for every 10,000 bands, there's one Frank Zappa that needs that guy. Right. Like, like a Bozio exactly. or, or, or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. Um, but there's a thousand or 10,000 other bands that need somebody that can just come in and make it feel good and play good time. Yeah. 
And, you know, yeah. that's what I've always gravitated towards myself because I'm not a chops guy either. And I just think for every chops guy, there needs to be 10,000 guys that can, you know, exactly. do a wedding band gig and make brown eyed girl feel right. You know what I mean? <laughs> hundred percent. And some of the best drummers, it's really amazing. But since I feel like I've had the awareness of exactly what we're talking about, some of the best drummers I feel like I've ever seen in my life were guys that you've never heard their name. And they were in the jazz trio that was playing at the restaurant I was eating at in New York City. Yeah. Where the guy's timing and, and, and he was he was just a working, fantastic, maybe taught too and was but you know, you hadn't heard of his name and yet he made these songs. You could tell he had technique, you could tell he knew how to play drum he was a seasoned veteran of playing great, great um pickup kind of, you know, commercial gigs like that. And yeah, so it just amazes me. I, I just feel like it's I've I've made this sort of comparison before i feel like drummers all the drummers that are in the world right now every it's like a giant stew and of course every stew needs its main ingredient like it's a pork stew or it's a beef stew or it's a chicken stew or whatever and so you've got your your neil Peart's and your buddy riches and your whatever but like i'm perfectly happy being a carrot or a, a piece of celery because you it, it accentuates and adds to it but you're not you know what i mean like i'm okay not having to be in the in the four because there, there's still a necessity for for <laughs> there's still a necessity for the celery yeah man absolutely and you know i mean we talk about this a lot on this podcast and you know i i think that you know, it's great to have aspirations to be the next Dave Weckl. I think that's fantastic. But if you want to get out and play and play a lot, you have to be able to do exactly what you're talking about. And that is play the standards and make it feel right where the band leader isn't turning around going, okay, Jamie, knock that off. You know, I mean, that's exactly the the last thing you want. Well, and the funny part that I can share this too, but I, I can't, I can tell you from experience, there's been many, many times where I have also, as a reverse, I, I, I've heard players who play fantastic chops and they play fast. And there's, I mean, you know, there's, there's guys right now that we all know that you can, I can sit and watch their videos and just get just mortified in a, in a good way. Like my jaw drops. I'm like, how can you play that fast? How can you play that? What is this? What is he subdividing? What is he? Whatever. And then the point being, then you hear them go to a groove. And again, I'm, it sounds like I'm trying to be negative. I'm not, I promise, but they're just there that there's things lacking in the way that they play the groove that needs to be felt. That doesn't feel like some of the guys, if that makes sense, like you just, you, you pick and choose where you're going to spend your time and, and if you really want to get serious about your feel and your meter and playing with the click and your and your drum sound and session work and stuff, it's a whole different set of skills that you go down versus those ones. Unless, like I said, all you're doing is instructional videos because you do a certain thing. So, like I said, there's call for everybody. I'm just very, very much uh, content and happy being a guy who can work on trying to make the music feel the way it's supposed to feel, whatever that intended feel is, because that can be all over the map. But yeah, who who can work on feel and really has a, a drum sound that when you hear it, it, it can, it can make you feel something that those are my goals now at this point in my career. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, let me, let me ask you this, because I think this is interesting, you know, back in 2020, there was kind of this, 
you know, viral uh, drum challenge going around and it was, hey, uh, yeah. play drums to everybody wants to rule the world. And, and you've been in that chair now for, gosh, I, I, are you coming up on what, eight years, 10 years with with tears? Uh, my first gig was in February 2010. So I got actually got the gig the tail end of 2009. So first gig 2010 is going on 12 years. Oh, my God, almost, man. Time gets away from years, us. Yeah. But you've been sitting yeah, in no, that chair. The thing is, I have, yeah, I have the lo- I've held the drum chair the longest of any drummer, and and yet only just now uh, was able to play on an album because they haven't had a studio album in seventeen years. Yeah, man. Well, that's awesome. But you know, so I know you saw some of that stuff on social media. You've been sitting in that chair playing that groove, and while not technically difficult to play, to make that song feel right. It, you you got to know what's going on. So exactly when you were seeing all that stuff, you know, this, this viral challenge that all these drummers were doing, were you, were you sitting there kind of going, yep, this guy's got it. Nope. That guy doesn't. <laughs> or, well, what? it was really funny. If you want to know the God's honest truth, the majority of those videos I saw at first, um, most of them that came across my plate or that someone tagged me in or sent my way. Um, most of them were pre- pretty amazing. Like I was blown away at, at people's mastering of, of metric modulation and playing straight within the swing and the whole thing um, to the point where I found I almost I, I got to admit it, it, it made me jealous of the fact that I couldn't really do that kind of thing to that extent. <laughs> However, then I was my thought was and I never did it because then I thought, oh, no, I'll really make a statement with that for, for probably a good three months. I was dead set on filming myself setting up the whole piece like okay here we go yeah here everybody well i've been the drummer for the last you know 12 years this is my take on the version whatever and then let the song roll and actually just play exactly the groove that i play live (laughs) which is exactly like the song and thought like that's the way it's supposed to be like as a joke right here comes the guy who you think well he's let's see what he does with it and basically i just played the simplest version which is exactly what i play live (laughs) but i thought no people will think i'm bagging that that's going to be taken as though i don't appreciate everyone's things towards stuff so but i didn't do it but my point is i was blown away and and yeah i saw some amazing amazing drummers go and play what you know is a legendary and famous group although the funny part is is i still get questions and wonder how many people actually play it correctly because i've heard about 10 million ways of people playing the simplistic beat as well so yeah it's uh it's it's pretty funny it's an interesting groove for sure well and i know like on the studio version of that song there's some electronics going on and and you know some some loops or whatever but what i find interesting yeah. and and it may have been on this last tour you guys may have incorporated some of that back in the in the live set but for many yeah. years you guys were not using anything as far as samples or loops or anything and you were recreating it all live you know with your four limbs um, you know, which I think ups the degree of difficulty, right? Um, well, it, it depends. I, I, what we've done, what have, what has, since I've joined the band, um, things have actually kind of come full circle. I joined the band in 2010. I, I've never used one stitch of electronics, nor have, we used sampled drums or any sort of electronic drums live. What, what, what I've played to from the time I joined the band in songs like Rule the World and stuff is there's sometimes heavy shaker 
patterns that are on track. Um, there's been, uh, you know, other synth- synthesizers and special effects and things like that have been on track. But the bulk of the reason we have played to a click has been because Roland and Kurt really like the fact that we play the songs at the same tempo every night so that the, uh, adrenaline and things like that don't get away from you because the specific placement of the tempos of a lot of their hits um, they're just felt good at a specific place. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, just taking a sip of water. So yeah, we. Um, but on this new tour, and because I actually got to, for the first time, construct how I wanted to approach the songs on this new record uh, that I played on, I wanted to break it down onto you know how I could best serve playing this and recreating the song when you hear it on the album, recreating it as, as close live, because that is also something that this, I know, Tears and I've experienced is very calculated about, is trying to get as close to the sounds, whether it's the synth sounds or the guitar sounds or whatever, so that we recreate as much of the album, you know, live uh, without leaning too heavily on tracks and loops. And so, uh, so I've gotten to, for the first time, I've actually incorporated electronics within my kit. So I've got uh, three pads to the side of me that are electronic pads that I trigger original sounds straight off the master's. Um, the master recordings and I have a trigger bass drum pedal for some options there. So yeah, I have definitely am incorporating it for the first time, but again, everything that is on track that I play to, uh, has, has either been lifted straight off the master or involves more, more the percussive side of things. So I've never triggered it, nor do I trigger any of my acoustic drums live. That's all just acoustic sound. So, uh, recently there's been a, a bunch of videos that have come out of some performances we did back in January uh, for promotion for the new record. And uh, recently this one for KCRW came out. Bottom line is we went into the Village Recording Studio in West LA back in January. We rehearsed a bit off the new record and some of the old ones. And we filmed again because of COVID. We couldn't go into these places, Good Morning America and Stephen Colbert. But we, uh, we set up different studio settings and we recorded performing these songs live and as these things have come out uh, the kcrw one just came out a couple days ago and i was watching it f- for the first time and was just really blown away at how uh, i'm a fan of this band as well if that makes sense i was blown away and really just touched and and sometimes i have to pinch myself to remind myself that i'm playing with such a such an exceptional band these guys are just fantastic and their perfectionism is uh is still very very noted and still very present so um i it, it takes a lot of work that's where i put my my uh, you know my brain power and my thought and my whatever is in how i can get the best drum sound and the best create the best drum parts and and bring these songs to life so that's where i definitely spend my energy yeah man for sure well i mean i i think for people that maybe aren't familiar um with the the new record that you played on um you know everybody knows the hits from back in the day right but they they you you know i i hate this term but a lot of people will say oh well it's a legacy act right but yeah you know like you said they hadn't put out a a a studio record for a lot of years, you know, 17 years or whatever. What was the the experience like going into the studio? Like that first day where you like, uh, okay, I've really got to get myself together here. Or was it just a continuation of, of just, just working with incredible musicians? 
Well, the interesting part about how this record was done, that's the first time that I've ever experienced anything like it in my professional career as well, was the record was sort of done in stages and done in parts over a period of about, no joke, over the period of about seven years. So oh, I, wow. I, okay. Yeah, I went into, I've gone into the studio three, four different times with tears over the last seven years, um, doing drum tracks or partial drum tracks. A big way that this album was created too was that they had loops and stuff that I had played on previously. Like I went in and did a, a two days worth of sessions with those guys where I just set up variations of different kits and played variations of grooves to different tempos. I basically created a library of loops at different tempos of me playing that were then used to kind of chop up and create the underlying patterns for the songs. And then I came back another time and did some overdubs once they had put together basic tracks, because again, the writing and the way that they were writing and, and putting this music together took many turns and took many um, different, uh, I guess, took on many different entities throughout the course of that seven years and then changed almost entirely during the COVID pandemic where they went back and pulled out old songs that they had thought were, were not going to be. Yeah. And so there was, it was very, very unique how it was put together. But during the sessions that I did for the record, I do remember thinking this is going to be interesting how it will all come out. And then once I heard the final product and was sent a copy of the album, um, just before it was mastered, I was absolutely blown away. And it just, again, reminded me and, uh, Rebrought into yeah, just just brought to light my my I don't know my my amazement at how talented these guys are. Yeah, man, for sure. Well, I mean, I I just think that you know for people that that think um, you know if anybody listening to this thinks oh Tears for Fears they were an '80s band yeah you, you got to listen to the new record because they are not an 80s band They're certainly 100%. not and i think you know there's a lot of people that i put it this way the other thing that's been incredibly mind blowing for me is the fact that in reading reviews and in hearing reviews about this new record um not once have i heard someone say that they didn't think it was in it like i've heard a lot of people say just that. i've not heard one review that anyone thought it was bad and if anything i've heard quite the contrary the people are saying that it was they think it's some of the best work tears has ever done so and again you know i just think you know that they're not a nostalgia act or a legacy act when you listen to this new record because it's evident it's undeniable and just listening to it um how how well it was done and how well it was produced and how good the songwriting is yeah man i i agree a hundred percent um so uh, let's talk a little bit about influences i mean you you've mentioned you know, Keltner and, and, you know, uh, Gad and, and some of those cats, um, and Peter Chris, you mentioned uh, who else, when you were young, just like really did it for you. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think the drummers that I listened to, um, when I was first playing tended to be much more of the hard rock side. I, People, I, it's weird. I, I don't know if people who came and saw me would walk away with this. Although over the years, I have heard very much this thing. Um, John Bonham was it for me. Like John Bonham, Phil Rudd from ACDC was one of my biggest and earliest influences. And again, you, as I'm sure you can appreciate as a drummer, I think Phil Rudd sometimes gets so much flack or slack for not being, you know, whatever. And I, I, I challenge anyone to make, 
even the other amazing drummers that have played with ACDC over the years, Simon Wright and Chris Slade and some of these other guys, again, great drummers, but they don't sound like Phil Rudd. And he is just a thing about his playing. John Bonham, that's it, that is what it is. Alex Van Halen, same thing. I think from a very early age, I could tell his drum style very clearly, but it was also his drum sound, such a recognizable snare drum sound. And when he got into the Simmons toms and Pisces, you could just tell they were Pisces cymbals. And so I got, uh, there was a guy named Tommy Aldridge, who I'm not sure if that name rings a bell with you, but oh, he was absolutely probably, Black Oak, Arkansas, oh, White Snake, uh, Ozzy Osbourne. Travers, yeah. Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, Tommy Aldridge is absolutely by far within my top three ever, because I just, I was a huge double bass fan growing up and I just thought the way that he approached the double bass and his his speed and his his musicality on double bass was and the way he used it incorporated into fills more than playing it as a you know 16th note bottom bottom beat underneath here like the way that he approached it blew my mind and so definitely Tommy Aldridge Peter Chris I loved um because I think that was definitely more of the combining the image of rock and roll and the whole you know hype of just uh than than me ever necessarily thinking he was this incredible drummer but um but he had a thing for sure Peter Chris had a thing that was undeniable but um but definitely Tommy Aldridge, definitely Alex Van Halen, definitely John Bonham. And then as far as when I started getting into recording, 100% it was Jeff Beccaro. Um, Steve Gadd has been, and probably more recently in the last, as far as the last 10 years, I would say Steve Jordan for sure. Uh, Nate Smith, I think, is absolutely incredible. Um, how his right hand and his hi-hat work and his feel. Um um, you know, there's just there's there's just a bunch of guys, but I'd say that those guys have been a lot of the heavy rock drummers. I remember a guy named Clive Burr that was Iron Maiden's first drummer before Nico McBrain. He was a huge influence of mine because I first learned Run to the Hills and you know Rick Allen from Def Leppard, amazing drummer as well. Just so again, I came from what I guess would be known as sort of the '80s hair metal time, and uh, so a lot of those guys, Tommy Lee. Bobby Blotzer, uh, you know, I, but again, I, even at that time, I looked forward to hearing guys that played a bit more and went a bit more outside. Um, but again, I come full throttle now as an adult, I look back and I go, man, Ricky Rocket played some great drum parts at the time. I didn't think he was anywhere near the, the caliber of Tommy Lee or whatever, but I look back now and I go, man, he was every bit of great. He's the one that made those uh, Poison songs feel like Poison songs, you know? Yeah. So I'm appreciative of what people brought to the table that, that created uh, a thing, if that makes sense. So. No, I, it absolutely does. And, you know, the other thing about uh, Ricky that, that I find really interesting is people, um, you know, it really blew off Poison as, you know, just all bubblegum and hairspray and all that. And, um, you know, I challenge anybody to write three records as good as their first three records were. 100%. 100%. And again, like them or don't like them, it's undeniable that they did a thing. And for the most part, what they did, people dug and people related to. And again, you know, if you can stay true, this is the great, this is the great equalizer or the great striving point. If you can stay true and feel like what you're creating musically is, 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 uh, you know, viable is reputable. You, you don't feel like you're consciously selling out as an artist to create this music or write under a certain 
type of genre or whatever you're not you know it's not formulated if you can still do what you want to do and how you want to represent yourself as a musician and people love it then you've hit the best of both worlds because you're not sacrificing your artistic uh freedom or artistic vision for the sake of wanting to sell records yet there's a lot of people that that go back and forth and vacillate between the two things and if you can actually do what you're doing and and love what you're doing artistically and people commercially people love it and, and it resonates with a lot of people then you've hit the jackpot yeah for sure and you know ricky is a sweetheart of a guy too and and you know 100%. I, can, I, I can tell you <laughs> offline but I, I got to hang out at his house once years ago oh, amazing. Yeah. um it, just by almost by sheer accident but he he treated me like family and he didn't know me from from Adam, you know what I mean? Exactly. And, and just treated just a super me super nice guy. Yeah, just a super sweetheart of a guy, man. So um yeah, so I, I don't let anybody disparage poison on my show. So <laughs> Amen. Beautiful. And I appreciate that very much because I think there's no need to regardless there's no need to disparage anyone who basically if if they're out there doing their thing. I mean again, sometimes I realize that people who are uh, people who are haters of other things for situations are only they're really truly they're only hating it because those people managed to probably figure out or do something that that, that hater has always wanted to do but couldn't figure out a way to do it yeah agreed a hundred percent and the one thing that I noticed about all of your influences those are guys um, that don't just lay down grooves they they dig ditches for their bands. exactly you know hundred hundred percent yeah and I I think that there's that there is an art form in and of itself of that. I think most drummers can can play a groove and make it feel okay, but the guys that absolutely dig a ditch for their band, like yeah, I love bands where you know that they're like two seconds from just completely falling apart if it 100%. if it weren't for that drummer, right? Absolutely. And, and there's a, yeah, man, I know it very well. And I've, I think it's part of the reason I will tie it back to say that when we're talking about all the, you know, again, the stuff we're talking about is pretty, pretty heady and pretty cerebral for those that, uh, and my assumption and, and trust is that most of the people that will listen to this podcast, right. Are drummers that can relate to in some way, shape or form differently, but resonate. This will resonate with most of them to some degree, right? The thing that blows me away about, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know. The bottom line is yes. I think it comes down to, there's an intricacy and a, and a, a beauty to creating something that, um, that makes your mark. And sometimes it doesn't have to, sometimes it can be the technical, but man, I gotta be honest with you. Sometimes I think that the, the need to go back and look at things like if, if I were to mention, let me turn this around, if you don't mind for two minutes and reverse the interview and say, if I asked you, Alex Van Halen, what makes you think of like, what do you think of when you think of Alex Van Halen? I wouldn't think you necessarily think of chops, right? No. No, I mean, I, you, what I, would you, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind if say, you had to describe Alex Van Halen or something that you connect with Alex Van Halen by name would be what? Um, like to uh, his drum. Obviously his snare sound. That's the, exactly, that's right? the first and thing so, that comes up. And then the second thing I think about is how intricate yet simple some of his stuff was. And I think most of that comes absolutely. from growing up playing with Edward. Exactly. Yeah, man. And so that thing, right, whatever that thing is, that is his thing. The beauty of the, the, and again, this is really heady, but I can sum it up with one, with one statement. 
where I'm at right now in my musical journey in my life is the realization that, that instead of trying to create or cultivate a very precise thing, an image, if you would, or, or be the best at a certain avenue of your drumming, if you just do, if you're so passionate about what you do and it, it doesn't have to be, I guess I'm going, I'm throwing it back to, to this scenario, right? And this concept is I don't think Led Zeppelin, of course they were concerned or they wanted to have their sound be good. They wanted, you know, Jimmy Page obviously wanted a Les Paul through a Marshall and whatever, and Bonham had his Ludwigs. And that was, there was thought put into that. But my point is it was more about what happened when those four people, those four musicians picked up their instruments and began to play music together. Yes, their instruments helped create the sound, but it was what they did, their their actual, their soul, part of their personality and their character. And when you get the right combination of those characters doing what they just naturally do, and you turn that volume knob up on what each person naturally does when they just do their thing, and that combination makes something like Van Halen or U2 or the Rolling Stones, or that's when you get this insane magic where no one is trying to be something that isn't 100% them anyway, but them each being 100% themselves creates this 400% of this, uh, this band and this thing and this feel. And that's what I got. That's part of, so like Eddie and Alex, that was all natural. You, no matter what, you cannot put two guys together and say, you can come close, but you can say, you play like Alex Van Halen, you play like Eddie Van Halen and write a song that sounds Van Halenish. And, you know, there's way too much thought that would have to be put into that than what happened when those guys got together and made music. Right. So, but I'm, I guess what I'm saying too, is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus more on releasing or bringing to life. What is the fullest natural me when I, when I think of what I, comes out of me naturally as a drummer that's what i'm trying to capitalize on and to me like i said that's about my groove my feel and about um creating a a really good memorable sound uh, experience for anyone who's coming to hear the music that i'm playing yeah 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 and i i agree with you a hundred percent i mean i i could spend my whole life you know trying to be a second rate john bonham clone or I can be the best Jamie Eads that I can possibly be. And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, 100%. And, but the odd part is, is that sometimes you just, it's like you can't make a tomato ripen before it's time. You, a bottle of wine doesn't ferment or doesn't age to its appropriate place before it's time. It's almost like you can't, I can't, I couldn't have made myself come to this realization any other way than than letting it happen when it happens, right? Because there, my a good chunk of my younger career and younger profession was spent trying to be something, figure out what I was going to be, and you and you learn who ultimately you are by by throwing into your blender all of the examples, all of the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspirations, all of the people that I admired, all the people I listened to. Um, and wanted to play like I take all those ingredients, throw them into the blender, and then what comes out is whatever is me, right? Is yeah. the, is the combination of how I feel drums and rhythm and music and what comes naturally, what's instinctive, and and that was all shaped by the influences and inspirations that I had as drummers, and and still have them now, man. I'll sit down and try and go for this song. I want to feel like like a, how would Steve Jordan approach it, and ultimately, it's still going to be. 
Jamie while I'm playing it and it's going to sound like me playing it, but I can use those, those examples and things that I want to sort of have it sound like and in the vein of, uh, which is very helpful. But again, it's all going to come out sounding like me because I just let it be me. I don't cognizantly think it has to sound like somebody else. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, everybody is their own filter too. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I try to explain that to people all the time. You, you can put a gun to my head and say, play like Alex Van Halen. And I might be able to get close, but it's still going to be Jamie Eads playing like Alex Van Halen. And, and the amazing thing, Jamie, is that when, if you if Alex Van Halen were to walk in your studio and sit down and go, oh, man, can I play your kit? If he sat down and started playing, it's going to sound like Alex Van Halen. Absolutely. Well, and <laughs> I was your kit on a, on a baby kit. You could tell it sure. would be Alex Van Halen. And it's that sort of signature thing that, I, and again, those variations of what that could be, uh, they 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 have a wide array of what they could be. But like I said, it's just in. I want to have. I want my goal is to be able to have someone hear something of mine and go, oh, that sounds. If they knew me anyway, would go, yeah, that sounds like Jamie. Yeah, you know? for sure, man. And so, and I think that's a wonderful thing to aspire to. And you know, another thing that I would point out, you know, you said you can't make the fruit ripen before it's ready. Um, you know, you're short lived into your sobriety. And I don't know if it's similar for you as it was for me, but the first time that I like went into a session after I got sober, I was like, who is this person playing right now? Because... <laughs> Yeah, 100%. My mindset was completely different. And, you know, the producer that I was working with, he was like, wow, man, what got into you? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, uh, I oddly enough, I got to share this with you too, man. But going going into this last tour that we started in May, I, uh, I, I had some serious, I had some sleepless nights and some nights I woke up uh in a panicky sweat because I was petrified about going out knowing how I was going to be able to, if I was going to be able to number one, perform as well or the same or good, or if, you know, two years without doing any real drumming. Um, and again, just remember this when I, I said this earlier, when I moved up to Canada, I didn't come with a drum set. I, I didn't, I didn't even have a drum set to play on. I hadn't even played, or picked up sticks or sat on a drum kit for almost two years by the time I got my first kit up here. So it was, and then to come from that and I've worked in a trade with my hands and a very physical job, my body's not getting any younger. I really struggled with wondering, uh, with a lot of anxiety about wondering if I was going to be able to come back in and play uh, professionally at a level. And then, you know, but I realized too, that was a lot of just anxiety from newness and recovery and, and, you know, there's a lot of firsts in recovery. And part of the first I had to do was handle my, my, uh, my apprehensions and my fear and my nervousness and whatever and channeling that stuff and, and doing that all sober, which was, uh, <laughs> which was unique. I wouldn't, wasn't going to say it's difficult. The only thing difficult about it was managing the adrenaline and the fear. But once I really got a couple shows under my belt and was reaffirmed and reassured that I had I still possess the things in me that I really needed to do professionally. Then it was actually the opposite. I, I felt like I was able to put the, my foot down on the pedal and just drive harder and, and do things. Like I said, some, I think I, I think I, uh, I think I, my voice was able to be heard more on this tour than uh, a lot of other times in the past. Yeah. If that makes 
Yeah. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. And, and I, so I'm going to wrap up soon. But I'm curious uh, that first time you played after, you know, realizing your sobriety, uh, did you have the exact same experience as me? And that is you reconnected with the 13 year old Jamie, like you um, found that joy again. Yeah, man, it's such a beautiful way to describe that, Jamie. But that was exactly what I feel. Uh, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what I think. Put it exactly like you said. That was what occurred and has occurred with many people who have have experienced that and what we've both gone through in our journey. But yeah, I felt like um, again when when you say thirteen year old Jamie picking you know, up playing drums for the first time, what I've experienced is this insane level of passion. Uh, focus and and clarity and recommitment, if you would, to like some of the the fire that that had me sitting down at a drum practice pad or a drum set, um, and really thinking about what I was doing and and getting just being. That's what comes from when you're passionate about something, right? Um, so yeah, I I was re- reconnected with that. I was also reconnected with the Jamie that uh, would would was scared, absolutely scared shitless to get on stage and play because I, you know, I was nervous. I didn't have, I was, I was afraid of, you know, not doing well or being, making a mistake or doing whatever, which again, alcohol and drugs, as you continue to, to use those in your life and you've been playing music professionally and using drugs and alcohol as part of your program for a long time, that whole, man, that whole thing we're talking about, that whole clarity and, and presence gets waxed over incredibly hard. It's like you, sometimes you, you bear, I mean, there's nights I can, I never really played wasted, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of nights and times leading up to a show or the night, the part afterwards or whatever, like it's all a blur and there's not a lot of clarity around so much of my professional life in those. And I'm really sad about that, but I've come to make peace with it. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm back to that place where, yeah, I experience it. I feel it all. And it's, and it's an amazingly beautiful feeling. And I, I wouldn't trade it for the world for sure. Yeah, yeah man. Uh, same yeah, experience. I feel like a kid. <laughs> Definitely feel like a kid again. Yeah. Same experience for me. You know, the, the yeah. first, the first show after being sober, you know, where you don't have your, you know, your two drinks before you play or what, whatever the case may be. Yeah, no, we sound, man, not only by name, we sound like we've had some amazingly parallel moments, which again, we, this, this opportunity to connect with you has been beautiful. And you and I have, have, have begun a friendship that will take us into many more conversations off of, uh, off of recording about, and I think we've probably had some amazingly similar experiences. Yeah, I, I think you're right, man. And it's beautiful. It, you know, and it goes without saying, anytime you want to be on this show, you're, you're more than welcome. And, and I do I want you to, that. yeah, I do want you to keep us posted on everything that's going on. And, um, you know, I, I just think the, the world needs, um, I, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but the world needs these honest and real conversations. And like I told you, you know, I don't talk about, Hey, what was that fill you did going into the third yeah. chorus? Because I, I think we have YouTube for that, Right. Well, and not only do I appreciate your approach, but the reality is more than likely, and and yeah, I say this with humor, but it's more true than it is humorous. If that was going to be the type of conversation, I mean, I'd have to do a heck of a lot more prep work uh, in advance to have (laughs) to even remember, because my answer would be, I don't don't have any idea. I don't even remember. If you can play it for me again or whatever, I'll try and explain it. But half the time, that's not even where... 
the, the stuff we're talking about is what actually shapes and creates what comes out of me when I sit down on a drum set. Like how does that make sense? Like where I'm at in my life and how where I'm at in my recovery and where I'm at with my peace of mind and where I'm at in my responsibility level and my relationships in my life when those are good and there's balance and they're healthy, like that all comes across in what I play. And that's far more uh, tangible or, or, or in essence than, than something as specific as a, as a ostinato pattern or something, which again, no begging on that. We both, but I, I love, the opportunity to talk about the things that we have, have shared. It's uh, I think it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you saying so, but I mean, I, I just think it's more important to understand what makes this player tick. Like what, what, yeah. what shaped their life to get them in the chair that they're in today. And yeah. y- you know, I, that's what the 13 year old me would have wanted to know. If I could yeah. have sat down with Tommy Lee when I was 13 and he was my idol, those yeah. are the things that I would have wanted to know about. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 100%, man. 100%. And I, we will, if you're good with it, we will schedule and have a part two where um, we get to compare some more notes. And again, but what you've, what you've really done, and I appreciate this too, is you've opened up a thought pattern with myself about sometimes you don't realize where your own mindset or your own vision is at until you're, you're asked to talk about it or explain about it. And, and so this is, this conversation has brought a, a sort of a re awareness and revisiting to where I'm at in that stage of the game as well with my career and how I approach drum. And so it's re- I love it. It's very, it's always really nice to talk to a drummer at this uh, stage and, and understanding of stuff too, because I think it's what I've longed for in the drumming community is more, more conversation and more education, more openness about some of the stuff that um, that doesn't have anything to do with the, how fast you play your double paradiddles, right, or the whatever. <laughs> it has to do with how do you pack, how do you properly pack a suitcase when you tour, and how do you? Uh, here's a good way to handle customs when you got to go blah blah blah, or you know, yeah, how to how to how to work out in your hotel room and, and important things about taking vitamins and trying to get proper rest because uh, whatever everyone thinks that's. But man, it becomes a very real part of your life and your career if you if you want to do it professionally. And I never never read too many articles about that. If anything, what I saw was exactly the opposite. You mean I can drink a three quarters of a fifth of Jack Daniels like Tommy Lee and somehow still be cool, <laughs> be cool and not die? But that's not really quite the the honest interpretation of what's happening or the honest, you know, vision of what's happening. So no, man, I think it's beautiful and I would love to love to join you again in the future. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure we do that. But, uh, in in the meantime, man, thanks for your time. I appreciate you doing it and coming on the drum shuffle and, and we'll talk real soon, man. Absolutely, Jamie. I thank you for having me too. And hopefully I didn't uh, bore you or anybody else too bad. No, man, this was great. We'll, we'll talk real soon. You got it, buddy. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode 153 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Thank you all so much for streaming, downloading, and tuning in. We simply cannot do it without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. Uh, And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing so. Uh, The biggest thing that you can do to help us out as a show, a podcast, is to share a link with a friend Hit the thumbs up, the like, the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to tune in uh, and listen to the drum shuffle so that you don't miss any of our fantastic episodes that we have upcoming. 
a million and one thanks to Jamie Wallum for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on and have a very open dialogue uh, about his life and history. Uh, it just means the world to me. He's such a great dude, and I thank him for his time. As always, we answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle Podcast. Our email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We can't do it without you. I thank you a million and one times as well for tuning in and listening. We simply cannot do it without you. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.